The Gospel of Luke. If you've been with us, you know that for the last little bit of time, we have been in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we've been working our way through it, but we're going to push pause on the uh, letter to the Corinthians and spend the next four weeks preparing our hearts and our minds to celebrate Christmas. And the message of Christmas, as I mentioned in the TCF article this, this past week, the message of Christmas is good news to a weary world. And our world is quite weary right now, is it not? Yeah, it is. Um, it's a message. The message of Christmas is a message that, by and large, our culture has lost its grip of. The Christmas message is swallowed up by the commercialization of Christmas to a large extent. It's become a secular festival of lights. It's a season to give generously to those closest to us and those in need. And those, are all, those two things are good and right, and they're congruent with the Christian origins of the celebration. But the true message of Christmas is far more glorious than anything our culture understands. The true message of Christmas is that in the birth of Christ, God himself has come to rescue and redeem humanity and the creation itself. Now just, I mean, just pause and consider those words just for a moment. That in the birth of Christ, God himself has come to rescue and redeem humanity and the creation itself. That's just a mind-blowing reality when you slow down and you actually consider it. The true light has dawned, is what the message of Christmas is. And he will expel all of the darkness of the world, all of the sin, all of the evil, all of the suffering, all of the death. He will do away with it by absorbing it himself. He will bring ultimate peace by absorbing sin, evil, and death. And he will extend free grace to anyone as a gift who will come to him and will receive him. This is the true message of Christmas. And anybody who slows down enough, and this is the trick of Christmas, is it not? You've got to force yourself to slow down because everything in the culture starts to speed up. You notice that? So the trick of Christmas is to slow down enough to really consider the full account of Christ's birth and the implications of it and to be captured once again by the wonder of it and a sense of wonder in our culture uh, also is in short supplies these days, is it not? A sense of wonder? We're more prone to cynicism, if we're honest. Maybe this is pastoral confession time. Um, we're more prone to cynicism than wonder. Is that not true? This is the audience participation part where you can go up and down if you agree. <laughs> Okay, you're awake. Good. You guys might need some more coffee. We should, like, have a cart in here that just passes through the audience. Um, my goodness. We're more prone to cynicism than wonder, which is why we need Christmas each year. It's why we need to slow down each year considering the incarnation. So what we're going to do over the next couple weeks, next four weeks, is uh, we're going to look at the account of Jesus' birth as told by Luke and let it prepare our hearts and minds to really celebrate 
and really worship Christ as King this Christmas. So with that in mind, Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to look at one of the most famous passages in Scripture. And because it's so well known, the challenge for you this morning is for you to read it without turning off your mind. Do you ever do that? You ever see a movie on TV and you've watched it so many times that you just turn off your mind and you don't really listen to it, but you watch it, you just kind of take it in? That's what happens when you read, sometimes that happens, when you read Scripture as well. You've read it so many times that it just kind of, it's just this background noise to you. So the challenge for you is not to turn off your mind as we work our way through this material. As I read it, I want you to look at it with fresh eyes, and I want you to see how Mary responds to the message of the Incarnation. Now, let me say something right here, because this is a message that has a lot to do with Mary's faith. Now, and that upsets a lot of people. If you're in the evangelical church, that upsets a lot of people. The reason it upsets a lot of people is because the Catholic church makes much of Mary, right? Too much of Mary. And so in response, the evangelical church tends to not deal with Mary at all. And again, that's a mistake. While Mary's not the object of our faith, she is a remarkable woman of faith. And so you don't want to just exclude her. You actually want to consider what does Mary actually do here. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. And what I want you to see is I want you to look for how Mary responds to the message of the Incarnation. And let her response shape your response to the message of Christmas. Because the person who's most, most uh, the message of the Incarnation most clearly affects, first of all, is Mary. And how she responds should shape our response to the message of Christmas. So, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Let's read it. In the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So Luke tells us right off the bat that the Lord sends the angel Gabriel uh, to Nazareth, a small little village of maybe 200, uh, maybe 300 people. Nazareth has grown in, in our day, but in that day it was 200 to 300 people. So the Lord sends a Gabriel there specifically to see Mary. And we're told Mary is betrothed or pledged to be married. Now, if you've sat in any Christmas messages, you know that Mary's a young girl. She's anywhere from probably 13 to 15, maybe 16 years old. Most girls were betrothed right after puberty. So maybe she's 13, maybe she's 14, maybe she's 15, but probably no more than 16 years of age. And she's pledged to be married to Joseph, who, by the way, is also uh, in our day, we would say super young in our day. In that day, he was just a normal age for getting married. So he's probably 16, um, maybe 16, maybe 17, maybe 18. Um, but also, in, by our days, we would say that's super young. In their days, that, they would say, no, that's the age you get married. Um, and so they're, they're betrothed at this point. And the way this worked was Hebrew parents arranged the marriages of their sons and daughters. And once, once the arrangements were made, once the decision was made to pursue a match, the fathers discussed every little detail, as a good father does. 
And they prepared a legal contract. And vows were made, tokens were exchanged, and the families celebrated. And at the conclusion of the ceremony, they entered into the betrothal period. And that could be, uh, the betrothal period could be as short as um, a month or two. It could be as long as a year. But at that point, they were, uh, they were legally married. They were husband and wife in every respect, except that they were to live with their respective parents, and they were not to consummate, consummate the marriage with sex. They were to refrain from sex. But again, they were legally married. And therefore, if something came up, if something were to happen, that they felt like they couldn't go through with the marriage, which was highly unusual, they would need to go through the formal process of divorce. So Mary at this point, as we just are told, she's betrothed. And let me ask the ladies in the room, when you got engaged, how excited were you? Hopefully you say pretty excited. Hopefully you're still sitting next to your husband and you say, yeah, actually I was pretty excited. Were you thrilled with anticipation? Were you overjoyed with the prospect of getting married? Yes, of course you were. Of course you were. Uh, you were thrilled out of your minds. And that's how Mary's feeling. She's super excited about the future. She's excited for the day that she's gonna, her and Joseph are going to become husband and wife. She's planning her wedding day. She's making plans for the day that Joseph and her will, will come together as, as one flesh. They're going to live together as husband and wife. And there, she, everything in her mind is geared towards that. Just like when you were engaged, if you were a woman, everything in your mind was, was geared towards that day. And then Gabriel shows up. And he flips the script on her entire life. Completely flips the script on her entire life. And what he says completely rocks her world. Look at what he says, verse 28. He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And verse 29, but she was greatly overjoyed. Oh, no, that's not what it says. She was greatly troubled at the saying. And the word they're troubled, um, that's what it means. Uh, it means disturbed. The, word, the Greek word actually means disturbed. Um, um, perturbed is another way it can be translated. Perturbed. Can you believe this? An angel shows up. She's not overjoyed with us. She's perturbed by this. She's, she's saying, what in the world is going on? Verse 1, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern <clears throat> what sort of greeting this might be. Hmm. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold... You will conceive in your womb, and every, every gear in her mind just got stripped, and you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Oh, my and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. 
And Mary looks at him, this angel, 13, 14, 15 years old. Mary says to the angel, how will this be? Since I am a virgin. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her, old, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So Gabriel just shatters her world. He shares this startling news with her that though she's a virgin, she's going to conceive and give birth to a son. And Gabriel tells her that her son's character, note it, it will be holy. Don't you wish somebody said that about your kid? <laughs> hey, your kid's character will be holy. You'd be like, oh, thank you, finally. But then they come out and they're like, oh, no, they're just like you. Um, they're just a little rebellious sinner. But Gabriel, that's not what Gabriel says. He says her son's character will be holy. He says in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So his character is holiness. Now think about that because holiness is only God's character. So this is holiness personified. This is God in the flesh. His character is holy. And then Gabriel says this, that the child's vocation will be that of a king. Look at verse 32. He will be great. Again, don't you wish somebody would say that of your kid? He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Hmm. And he will reign over, the, reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So this child that will be born to Mary is the true king. He's the rightful king. He's King David's greater son, the one Israel has been longing for, has been anticipating. And his kingdom, by the way, it will in, not just endure, it will continue to expand. Gabriel says, of his kingdom, there will be no end. So his kingdom will not just endure, it will continue to expand as more and more people come under his kingship. So what's said about this child thus far? His character will be holy, his vocation will be a king, and his purpose will be to save. Look at verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Which means God, God chooses the name of this son. Jesus. And Jesus, as you may or may not know, is the Greek form uh, of the Hebrew name Joshua. And Joshua means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. Which is why in Matthew's account of this, um, um, in the Matthew account, uh, Gabriel comes to Joseph, Mary's fiance, and says, concerning this child, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now add all of that together. The king of the universe is given the name Savior, which means all of his holiness, all of his deity, 
all of his power, it stands in the service of his saving mercy. You know what that is? That's a king you really want to belong to. Someone who has unlimited power, but their character is perfect. And they use all of their power not to exploit you, but to save you to the very end. That's the king your heart actually longs to come under. That's what that is. And this is the news that was given to Mary. This is who your son will be. All of his holiness, all of his deity, all of his power stand in the, stand in the service of his saving ministry. This child, Mary, will be God in the flesh. And he will come into his own creation, not to judge it, not to get rid of it, not to squash humanity, but to be a holy, divine, saving king. This is the news given to, let's say, 15-year-old Mary. Startling, to say the least. Well, how will she respond? Look at her response, verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Just amazing. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Amazing. Amazing. And Luke uh, includes this section, no doubt, because it tells of the incarnation of Christ. But also... He includes it because of Mary's response, which serves as a pattern for how all should respond to the message of Christmas. So how does Mary respond? Let me give you three ways, and then we'll work our way through them. I'll give them to you up front. We'll work our way through them. Here's the first one. She considers carefully. We'll see it in a second. She considers carefully. She surrenders completely. And then she sings joyfully. So first one, she considers carefully. Her mind is fully engaged. A lot of people um, who don't believe in Christ, when they come to this passage, they'll engage in what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, which is essentially the belief that we in our day, that we're oh so wise and that we're oh so sophisticated. But people in former generations, they were basically just rubes and gullible. They were easily duped. And what they'll do is they'll carry that belief right on into today's, today's uh, world with anybody who holds a historical Christian confession. And they'll say something along the lines of, well, you religious people, you just have stupid, blind faith. And you didn't really take the time to consider. Now listen, nobody can ever say that about Mary. Nobody can ever say that about Mary. Because an angel appears to her, and Luke doesn't tell us that she was overjoyed by this news. We don't read Mary say, oh, how wonderful. An angel speaking to me. I've been waiting for this to happen. I just, it hasn't happened yet. I've been waiting my whole entire life for this. She doesn't say anything of the sort. We don't read anything of that. Well, what does she? We actually read the opposite. Look again at verse 29. The text tells us Mary was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern, if you're in the ESV it says discern, if you're in the uh, NIV it says wondered, 
She tried to discern or wondered what kind of greeting this might be. So what did it, what's she doing here? I'll tell you what she's doing. She's thinking rationally about the message. The word discern in the, in the ESV, the word wondered in the NIV, it's a Greek word which means to make a settlement of accounts. Let me ask you, when you're, um, when you're doing your bills at the end of the month or you're looking over your bank statements, do you do that haphazardly or do you bring all of your mental energies to it? Hopefully, let me, let me, let me tell you what the hope is here. Hopefully, you bring all of your mental energies to it. If you're looking at your retirement account, do you look at that haphazardly or do you, th- or do you make plans regarding it? And you're thinking, well, if I increase it a little bit here and increase it a little bit here, if I, my daughters would get rid of their horses, I could increase it a, a little bit here. You plan actively about it. Uh, you're making a settlement of accounts. You know what you're doing? You're reasoning. You're thinking rationally. It, so the word discern, it's actually, it's an accounting term. It means to, being weighing, to be weighing things, to be adding things up, to be thinking clearly, to be thinking rationally, to be using good reason. Now, put it back to Mary. Of course she was troubled. Of course she was troubled, as any rational, normal person would have been. If an, if an angel appears to you, she's reacting the exact same way you would react if an angel just appeared to you. And she's got to be thinking to herself, am I hallucinating? Am I seeing what I really think I'm seeing? What kind of brownies did Joseph's dad give me last night? She is thinking all of these things. What? She's thinking, what in the world is going on here? And notice, she doesn't immediately accept the message. It's a shock to people that she doesn't immediately accept the message, but she doesn't immediately accept the message. She's processing. Remember in the old days on a computer when you'd pull up an old file and you'd sometimes get a little image and it would say processing. And it's this little image of just processing. Do you guys ever have a computer that old? It's processing. That's, that's the image you need to think of Mary here. She is, she's taking in all this information. She's, she has this backlog of Old Testament scriptures that's in her mind. She's processing all of it. So she's thinking rationally about the message. But note also, also, she thinks skeptically about her skepticism because her initial reaction was one of skepticism. The first time she heard the gospel message, she said, how can this be? How can this be? That's a really polite way of saying, what? Are you out of your mind? That's impossible. Well, why would she think it's, why would she think that? And by the way, you can tell that's what she's thinking. Um, That's impossible. Because at the very end of verse 37, what does Gabriel say to her? For nothing is impossible with the Lord. So her initial reaction is one of skepticism, and she's thinking this is impossible. Well, why would she say it's impossible? Here's the reason why. Because she had been trained by her culture not to believe that God could ever become a human being. She had been trained by her culture not to believe that God could ever become a human being. Remember, the Jews, they wouldn't even pronounce the holy name of God. So everything in her culture, now listen, everything in her culture mitigated against the idea that a human being could be God. Which means 
Mary is not that all different from us. Mary is not that different from us because in our culture, you and I have been trained since elementary school not to believe in the supernatural. We've been trained in philosophical naturalism from an early age, so everything in our culture mitigates against the idea that God could become a man. So Mary, she finds this message incredibly hard to believe. She responds with skepticism, but the question of how will this be isn't the question of a closed mind. It's the question of an open mind, which means she doesn't, the, a question of an open mind doesn't stop the conversation, right? If it's a question of a closed mind, you, you just immediately stop the conversation. But a, a question of an open mind continues the conversation. It's one of an open mind, which means, she, she, again, she doesn't stop the conversation, but what else she does is she examines her own skepticism. Excuse me for a second. My mic is catching my full beard here. It means, oh, did I lose it? Oh, there, uh, uh, am I there? Can you hear me? Okay, good. Uh, she examines her own skepticism. She's skeptical about her own skepticism. She pulls out her skepticism and says, do I really believe everything my culture has told me? Do I really believe everything my culture has told me? And instead of living with a closed mind regarding this, maybe, just maybe, I need to approach it with an open mind. And you know what? In our culture, it's a healthy process to examine why you might be skeptical regarding the supernatural. It's a really healthy process to consider why I might be skeptical regarding the supernatural. You might want to ask yourself, do I really believe that this is all just an accident and I'm nothing more than a grown-up germ? You might want to ask yourself that. Do I really believe? Deep down, when nobody else is talking to me, when I'm not in a college class, a comparative religions class, do I really believe that we're all just accidents and I'm a grown-up germ? Or could it be, could it be that there's a God? And if there's a God, he could intervene into his creation at any point in order to rescue it. Now look, see, you see, the barriers are different. From Mary to us, the barriers are different. The, the barriers Mary faced against belief in the Christian message is every bit as big as the barriers that you and I uh, are facing as we contemplate the Christmas message. But notice the path to faith. She doubted. Let me ask you this. Is doubt a terrible thing for the Christian faith? No, it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. She doubted. She questioned. She used her reason. She used her intellect. And she asked questions. Now you'll note this is the path to faith. And if you and I are going to have genuine faith, if you and I are going to have genuine faith, if the Christ Christmas message is going to make any difference in our lives, we have to journey down the same path. We absolutely have to journey down the same path. So first notice that Mary responds to the message by considering it carefully. It's a whole person experience that includes the intellect. Secondly, she surrenders completely. Her will is fully released. Look at the most famous line in the account, verse 38. 
Mary said after receiving this just gigantic message and processing, thinking about it, she comes to this famous line. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, again, see, we read this sometimes just with our Christian glasses on. Um, But notice what she's not saying. She's not saying it's so clear now. I understand it all. I get it. She's not saying that. Nor is she saying, I love this plan. I just absolutely love this plan, and I'm so excited to be a part of it. She's not saying that either. She's saying, even though it doesn't all make sense to me, even though it doesn't all make sense to me right now, I will embrace this, and I will trust you. That's what she's saying. She surrendered her will to God, even though she knew it was going to cost her. She knew, I mean, think about it. She knew she lives in a small village, and people in a small village are not stupid. They're going to do the math. Married on this date, baby born on this date, hey, wait a second, that doesn't add up. She knew, intuitively she knew Joseph wasn't going to believe her. She knew her little girlfriends within that community, they weren't going to believe her. She knew everybody in that little community would think either, either she had sex with Joseph before they were married, or she had committed adultery on Joseph. And she knew because of that, she knew that her son would be ridiculed and called a bastard, which he was. John chapter 8, verse 41. She knew all of these things, and yet she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. She looks at Gabriel, and she says, whatever may come, I will accept it, and I will continue to trust you. That's remarkable. And here's the reality. The reality is, anybody who wants to become a Christian must essentially do the same thing. Because becoming a Christian is not a program to help you self-actualize. You notice that? I know that's a bummer for some of you who may have thought that this was just a therapy group. Um, becoming a Christian is not, it's not a program to help you self-actualize. It's not a program to help you live your best life now. Nor is Christianity a vendor service providing you spiritual goods that you'll engage as long as it meets your, meets your needs at a reasonable cost. The Christian faith isn't that at all. The Christian faith is not a negotiation. Well, then if it's not that, what is it? It's a surrender of your will. That's what it is. It is a, boy, it got quiet in here. The Christian faith is not a negotiation. It's a surrender of your will, just as Mary did here. Well, what's the upside to that then? Here's what it is. You're releasing yourself to the king of the universe who is completely holy, who has all power, and all of his power stands in the service of his saving mercy. That's the upside of it. Who are you giving your life to? Who are you putting your faith into? This man. 
What is there not to like about that? That's the most amazing message ever. So look at, look at how Mary responds here to the message of Christmas. First, she considers it carefully. Her mind is fully engaged. Second, she surrenders completely. Her will is fully released. And then lastly, she sings joyfully. Her heart is fully captivated. Well, where do I get that in this passage? I don't, actually. <laughs> it's in the next scene where Mary goes and visits her, her relative Elizabeth, and she bursts into praise. Because she realized this message has captured her whole heart. Look at what she says. Look at verse 46 in chapter 1. Look at what she says here. Mary said, this is a song, we'll get to it, uh, if not next week, the week after. Look at what she says. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. From, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Hmm. The soul and the spirit, by the way, in the Bible, they're not two different things. Uh, this, is, this is parallelism. This is a literary device. And she's making an emphatic point. And what Mary's saying is the message of who this child is. And what he will do, it has moved me to the depths of my being. Her mind is engaged, her will is surrendered, and now her heart is captivated. And, and here's the deal. True Christian faith always moves, it always moves from mere mental assent to a surrendered will to a heart that's filled with joy. That's how, that is always how the Christian faith moves. Just like a young child on Christmas morning when they've received the gift, their heart is overjoyed. And one of the marks of someone who's been tr who truly understands the cr Christmas message, who truly understands the gospel, is at a heart level, there will always be a perennial note of joy, even when they walk through just terribly hard things. Underneath it all, though they will walk through the muck and the mire of this world, underneath it all, there is this perennial note of joy because they know they've received a gift that they could have never earned. And they didn't deserve. And this is why Mary sings in verse 49, He who is mighty has done great things for me. For me. Now look at her response to the Christmas message. She considers it carefully. Her mind is fully engaged. Second, she surrenders completely. Her will is fully released. And then third, she sings joyfully. Her heart is fully captivated. Isn't that wonderful? Well, it is wonderful for Mary. But what about for you? Because I don't know if you've noticed, but Mary is dead. And you're not. You're alive. So it's a wonderful for Mary, but what about for you? How can you not just hear the Christmas message, but actually be transformed by it? Because the scriptures are not just here for you to read. The scriptures are, for, are here so that God will transform your heart. So how can you actually hear the message of the gospel and not just receive it, but actually be transformed by it? Let me give you three ways. Here's the first one. Let your mind embrace the evidence. You want to be transformed by the message of Christmas? You have to let your mind embrace the evidence. Many people will read this account and they'll say, well, well, of course, Mary had an angelic announcement. Anybody, anybody would believe. Anybody would believe if they had an angelic announcement. Of course they believed. Of course she believed. Oh, my friend. <laughs> Don't you see how ironic that statement is? Don't you see? 
Because you have so much more than Mary. You have way more than Mary. You don't just have an announcement from an angel. You have the evidence of a life lived. Because this child grew to be a man. And both his friends and his enemies said that he was the Son of God. In John chapter 6, Peter says to Jesus, We have believed, trust, and we've come to know, mental assent, so note the process, we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then at the cross, one of the soldiers who stood by Jesus as he was being executed, he exclaimed, this is truly the Son of God. So both his friends and his enemies said that he was the Son of God. So unlike Mary, we have the full story. We have the full story. We can read the vivid narratives. We can see his love for humanity. We can feel the full weight of his teaching. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me tell you, if you want to become a Christian, you have to let your mind embrace the evidence. This baby, promised to Mary, born in a stable, was truly God in the flesh. He came all the way down and was, was placed in a cradle and then went to the cross where he, he knew his obedience to the Father would mean, would mean a plunge into outer, unfathomable darkness. But he also knew that his, by his obedience it would bring the light of eternity to you. And he was willing to make the trade. Every step, you see, from the cradle to the cross to the crown was done with you in mind. So if you want to be transformed by the Christmas message, let your mind embrace the evidence. But then secondly, let your, let your soul be caught up in the wonder of it. I read you guys this quote several years ago. I'm going to read it to you again. And if you stick with us for the next 30 years, I'll probably read it to you a couple more times. Uh, but get, do you guys remember the name Harry Reasoner? Yeah, I can tell how old you are if your head is going up and down right now. That's really just a cue for me. Uh, <laughs> I can tell how old you are if you know who Harry Reasoner is. Um, Harry Reasoner was a journalist who also hosted 60 Minutes on CBS, and later he worked at ABC's on ABC News. Well, 50 years ago, 50 years ago, uh, Christmas Eve 1973, in the midst of growing turmoil over the Watergate scandal, a troubled economy, wars and rumors of wars in the Middle East. Can you believe such a thing? Um, all sorts of wars going on in the Middle East and all sorts of uncertainty over the U.S. future, over the uh, U.S.-Soviet relations. He closed out uh, Christmas Eve broadcast by these, with these words. Let me read them to you. And it's a lengthy quote, but I know you're intelligent people. Listen to what he says. He closes out ABC News with these words. As you know, it's Christmas Eve. The basis for this tremendous annual burst of gift buying and parties and near hysteria is a quiet event that Christians believe actually happened a long time ago. You can say that in all societies there has always been a midwinter festival and that many of the trappings of our Christmas are almost violently pagan. But you come back to the central fact of the day and the quietness of Christmas morning, the birth of God on earth. It leaves you with only three ways of accepting Christmas. One is cynically, as a time to make money or endorse 
the making of it. One is graciously, the appropriate attitude for non-Christians who wish their fellow citizens all the joys to which their beliefs entitle them. And the third way, of course, is reverently. If this is the anniversary of the appearance of the Lord in this universe in the form of a helpless babe, then it is a very important deed. Then indeed, it is a very important day. It is a startling idea, of course. My guess is that the story that a virgin was selected by God to bear his son as a way of showing his love and concern for man is not an idea that has been popular with theologians. It's a somewhat illogical idea, and theologians who sometimes love logic more than they love God find it troubling. (laughs) It's so revolutionary a thought that it probably could only come from a God that is beyond logic and beyond theology. It has magnificent appeal. Almost nobody has seen God. And the truth is that among men, the idea of seeing God suddenly and standing in a very bright light is not necessarily a completely comforting and appealing idea. But everyone has seen babies. And most people, well, most people like them. If God wanted to be loved as well as feared, he moved correctly here. If he wanted to know his people as well as rule them, he moved correctly here. For a baby growing up learns all about people. If God wanted to be intimately a part of man, he moved correctly. For the experiences of birth and familyhood are our most intimate and precious experiences. So it goes beyond logic. It is what Bishop Carl Morgan Block used to call a kind of divine insanity. Now listen to what he says. It is either all falsehood or it's the truest thing in the world. It either rises above the tawdriness of what we make of Christmas, or it's simply a part of it and completely irrelevant. It's the story of the great innocence of God, the baby, God in the form of man. And it is such a dramatic shot toward the heart that if it is not true for Christians, nothing is true. He concludes with this. So even if you did not get your shopping all done and you were swamped with the commercialism and the frenzy, be at peace. And even if you're the deacon or the usher having to arrange the extra seating for all of the Christmas Christians that you won't see again until Easter. (laughs) It's almost like he reads my mind. (laughs) Even if you're the deacon or usher having to arrange the extra seating for all the Christmas Christians that you won't see again until Easter, be at peace. Why? The story stands. It's all right that so many Christians are touched only once a year by this incomparable story. Because maybe, just maybe, some final quiet Christmas morning, the touch will take. Because the message of Christmas is the Christmas story. If it is false, we are doomed. If it is true, as it must be, it makes everything else in the world all right. Isn't that great? That's just great. Um, Now listen. Listen, maybe you came here this morning and you're unsure about Christianity. Okay, fine. I completely get that. Maybe you came here this morning and you think, those Christians have done so many crazy things. Okay, fine. I agree with you. Um, There has been a lot of stupid things done by Christians. If you're not sure about Christianity, fine. But can you at least acknowledge... Can you at least acknowledge deep in your soul you want it to be true? You want God 
to intervene. You want God to deal with the evil and the suffering that humanity has caused and finally and fully to set the world right. Can you at least say, yes, I want that to be true, that you want to know God, and more than that, to be known and loved by God. If you can at least say that, start right there. Just start right there. Start right there and come to see that in the birth of this child promised to Mary that God has, God has intervened and you can be fully known and fully loved and then stick with us through these next four weeks as we make our way through the Gospel of Luke, through the Christmas season. And if you're a Christian right now and cynicism has crept in, as it tends to do from time to time, be caught up in the wonder of it all over again. Be caught up in the wonder all over again. Because the really, staggering, the really staggering claim of Christianity, as C.S. Lewis said, I put it in the TCF article this last week, the really staggering Christian claim is that God became man. The second person of the Godhead took on human flesh and lived as one of us in order to die for us and then gave us his grace as a gift. Now let that story, that reality, God became one of us to rescue you and redeem you. Let that fill you with wonder and joy this Christmas season. So how can you hear the message of Christmas and not, and not just hear it, but actually be transformed by it? First, let your mind embrace the evidence, not just an angelic announcement, but the full evidence of Jesus' life. Not just this announcement from Gabriel, but the full evidence of Jesus' life. His life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Let your mind embrace that reality. Let your weight down on it. Secondly, let your soul be caught up in the wonder of it. It's the true story that God in Christ is setting the world right. And that is just, gosh, that doesn't look like it excites you. That is the most marvelous news in the world. He's setting the world right. Because intuitively, we know that the world is broken. And intuitively, we know that we're broken. And he's setting it all right, starting with the people in it. And then lastly, let your heart be stored, stirred by the Lord's love. How can you be transformed by it? Let your heart be stirred by the Lord's love. Paul, the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, when he's reflecting on the Lord's love, he says, you know, tells the Corinthians, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich which means his grace given to you is a gift born out of his love, just like the gifts you give your kids on Christmas morning. And you know what happens when you really take time to meditate upon the Lord's love and to let your heart be stirred by it? It actually transforms you. The more you meditate upon it, the more you let your heart be stirred by it, the more it transforms you. Because what it will do, the more you meditate upon the Lord's love, it'll enable you to live gratefully. The Lord's love will enable you to live gratefully. Knowing that your relationship with the Lord is based, it's, it's rooted not in your works, not in your merit, not in your goodness, not in righteous deeds done by you. It's rooted in his love. So you'll be enabled to live great, gratefully. But then secondly, you'll be enabled to live selflessly. And don't you really want to live selflessly? Don't you really want to pretend to be as good, to actually be as good as you pretend to be all the time? To actually have this disposition in yourself? The Christmas spirit, that which our, that which our culture tries to manufacture so desperately this time of the year, each, each, each year, they desperately try to man, manufacture the Christmas spirit. They lubricate you all with eggnog, thinking that it's going to 
get you in the Christmas spirit. It won't. The true Christmas spirit will be yours all the year round. Listen to these words by J.I. Packer. He says, the Christmas spirit, the Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christian snob. I love that. The Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christian snob, for the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent to enrich their fellow human beings, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to, good, to do good to others in whatever way there seems need. There are not as many who show this spirit as there should be. If God in his mercy revives us, one of the things he will do will be to work more of that spirit in our hearts and our life. Is that not good? You want the message of Christmas to transform your life? Then come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Welcome him as Mary did, and then receive his grace as a gift this Christmas season. Amen? Why don't you stand and we'll sing? Father, we do pray that the message of the gospel, the message of Christmas, that as we enter into this season, it would, well, maybe not slowly, but at whatever pace you choose in our lives, Lord, that it would transform our hearts and our minds, that we would receive you as the ultimate gift, that your grace given to us would be cherished and loved all of our days, and that we would freely extend it as people who have been given this Christmas spirit, that we would freely extend your gift of grace to as many and as wide of an audience as possible. We thank you. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.